Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we're exploring the intersection of international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. Today, we're talking about monarchy and the role of monarchy in uh, international reputation. And uh, I suppose to start us off, I think we need to begin by looking at the way in which when countries present themselves to the world, the monarchy is placed front and centre. I mean, Simon, is this your experience looking at how countries uh, present themselves that, that that they begin with the monarchy or where, where typically the monarchies fit in? Well, it depends very much on the type of monarchy, doesn't it? But I, I think if we're thinking about the, the European royal houses, for example, um, they are primarily considered as soft power assets, they're tourist attractions. There is something inescapably romantic about the idea of monarchy and what my research has shown over the years is that people who don't live in monarchies value that even more than people who do. So if you come from a republic, I think there's there's a sense of missing that kind of fairy tale quality of kings and queens and princesses in castles, which um, people from republics find absolutely irresistible, which is why they tend to go on holiday to countries where monarchy and the paraphernalia of monarchy is always on, on display. It's a funny kind of scenario, isn't it? Because these these people are, in theory, there to rule the country in practice. Again, when we're talking about Western Europe, they don't do that anymore. They're there just to look good. And it certainly is um, a good look. It adds um, measurably to the appeal of the place. And many years ago now, I got quite interested in this idea and tried to measure it. Um, this was at the time when there was a new princess in the Danish royal family. And a Danish journalist in an interview asked me what the brand value of this person was to Denmark. And it was a question that took me by surprise. So I said, I don't know, let me go away and think about it. And I went away and thought about it, and I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations, which quickly turned into big spreadsheets. And uh, it sort of culminated with me um, announcing that the woman who we now know as Catherine Duchess of Cambridge, and was then Kate Middleton, mm -hmm. added uh, 26 billion US dollars worth of brand equity to the image of the United Kingdom. 26 billion? 26 billion, simply by being there. So if we had three quarters of an hour to spare, I could explain how we did the calculation. But uh, it, is, it, it is a rough calculation, but it gives you a sense of what we're talking about here. I'm, I'm not a monarchist in the sense that I, you know, I don't have a particularly strong position either way on this. But it is rather a strong argument against the Republicans who say, Republicans in the sense of people who live in a monarchy and w wish it was a republic, I don't mean American Republicans, who say it's not worth the public money. They, they live on our taxes. They live at our expense. They're parasites, which is a frequently heard complaint against uh, royal families. This suggests that they're actually really rather good value because the cost to the taxpayer of maintaining a single member of the royal family is seldom more than about a million pounds. 
Um, but if they're giving back $26 billion worth of brand equity, then that looks like a pretty good deal to me. My instinct is not has been historically not to be sympathetic to uh, the monarchy just on, on principle. Apart from anything else, it seems very cruel to monarchs to take a human being, confine them in this way and make all kinds of expectations on them. I know you and I have joked before about the ancient traditions of kings being sacrificed. Uh, and it seems that there are elements in contemporary monarchy that go to this. But, um, you know, when we think about the contribution, the actual contributions of monarchy today, and it, 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 it's making me change my mind. And we'll see where I am at the end of our conversation, but I can feel things, <laughs> I can feel the wheels turning in favor of um, monarchy. Uh, which of the European monarchies do you feel contributes most or, or makes most of a contribution to soft power? I, I think the British monarchy is, uh, is unusually prominent and unusually widely followed. I think, you know, the, 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 the Belgian, the Dutch, even the Spanish monarchy don't get much international media unless it's a scandal. Yes. Whereas the British monarchy is regularly and and faithfully followed by TV audiences around the world every time they do anything, so they are they are very much the leading family. And you think that goes beyond just the person of the the of Queen Elizabeth II? Yes, I think so. I think that it's it is the the way that we've handled and maintained and continued to. Put, as you said, uh, our monarchy front and centre is very different from the way that it's happened in, for example, Belgium or, or the Netherlands or, or, or the Nordic, uh, the Scandinavian countries that still have monarchies, that they have a tendency to, to downplay their monarchy or have had historically. More recently, they've begun to realise that it is an important, attractive asset and have slightly uh, profiled it slightly higher but I don't think we ever stopped. I think it was always pushed right out. The fact of the Queen being head of the Commonwealth is obviously a very significant difference because it means she is the, the head of state of nearly a third of the world's population. And that's, yes. that's an important Well, it's interesting to see how this plays for the Netherlands, where you know the Queen, their Queen also is, is a Queen of the Dutch Caribbean. You know, there's a situation where there are multiple prime ministers uh, answerable to the to the, to the queen. It kind of puts a check on the political process, limits the politics. But maybe we can uh, get to that later on in, in this uh, conversation. Something you've said to me before that I, I I come back to is that you think that monarchy might help countries to plan for the future. Yes. How would that work? It struck me when uh, a funny thing happened. I was uh, speaking at a conference in Sweden a good few years ago now, and uh, it was the 60th anniversary of the Swedish Institute, I recall. They asked me to give a talk about Sweden and, and uh, its, its presence in the international community. And I talked about its, its image and all the rest of it. A woman in the audience who later turned out to be a member of the Swedish royal family um, I, I didn't recognize her. She said to me, she said, Simon, that was all very interesting. How long would it take to change the image of Sweden? And so uh, I said to her, I said to her, I said, well, why would you want to? It's already better than the reality. Um, you need to be careful what you wish for. And she said, oh, ha ha. But seriously, though. Um, and I said, I don't know what, 20 years, something like that. And her face visibly brightened. And she said, oh, that quick. 
And I was rather struck by that answer because I'm used to elected politicians who tend to say, you know, next Friday or forget it. And it suddenly occurred to me that for her, the time didn't really matter very much. As long as the change happened, it didn't matter whether it happened in her lifetime or her granddaughter's lifetime, because for her, Sweden was the family business and always had been and always would be. And there's something particularly awful about that, the injustice of it, the unfairness of it, but also at the same time, the wisdom of it, because this, in the true sense of the word, disinterested view of the country, in other words, absolutely objectively caring about where it goes in the future is something which is almost impossible to replicate amongst elected politicians, because by definition, they don't care once they've left office. They don't care what happens because their successor is going to take the credit for it if they do anything good and going to take the blame for it if they if they mess up on, on long term stuff. So I just found myself wondering after that conversation in Sweden, isn't there some way that you can take the good bits of monarchy and distill them and bottle them, take away the the, the, the unfairness of it, take away the lack of democracy around it. It's a little bit like a like a like a virus that is very dangerous to human health but if you manipulate it and you take out the bits that are that are pathogens you can end up with a cure for something and i i've always had that feeling about monarchy that there are components of monarchy which are valuable and if you could take out the the the, the pathogens you'd have something really useful the members of royal families themselves are very very interesting and potentially very useful people because they're very highly educated, almost invariably. They are brought up, as you, uh, as you hinted, with a very, very profound, almost crushing sense of public service and public duty um, and the interests of the country at heart. But they're not allowed to be politicians. Uh, we're not talking here about West Asia. We're talking about still about Europe. And in Europe, the convention is that they just have to sit there, espouse vague good causes and look nice and not get into trouble. Here's a question that to me, comes out of monarchy, uh, and that is the connection to religion. When I was writing about imperialism, one of the things that really struck me about the whole idea of an empire is that it's about human power, but it's always human power directly under, under God. Looks to me like this continues to monarchy as well, and that when we're talking about monarchy, we're also connecting it into a religious even a broadly a religious worldview is that your sense too or are there truly secular monarchies out there paradoxically i would suggest that some of the the west asian monarchies the islamic monarchies are more secular than some of the european ones because it's not a thing that i've ever heard said that a a west asian monarch is there by royal decree, by um, holy decree the, appointed by God, but it is a thing that's still in the language of European monarchies. Um, that's something that's worth looking into, and I'm sure somebody somewhere um, better informed than me already has. But certainly the, those trappings of, you know, Her Majesty the Queen by the grace of God, that's still around, and it's part of the magic, and it's part of the ceremony. But then again, you know, in, in the European countries where we still have monarchies, the importance of religion in everyday life for the majority of the population has declined and therefore those magic words are today probably little more than magic words and there was a there was that interesting moment when prince charles a few years ago now suggested that he should be the defender of faiths hmm. 
and yes. that the role of the monarch should be to allow everybody to have faith rather than yes. being associated with one specific faith. So it, it may be something that he's reaching towards mm. is a, a redefinition of monarch as sort of faith adjacent rather than... Or, or faith just being part of their remit rather than their raison d'être. Yes, I think that's sensible thinking and, and as is typical, um, very careful sloganizing, um, thanks no doubt to their, to their PR department. But, but you know, it's, it's good. It's a good idea. I had my own suggestion for something uh, which I called Monarchy 2.0. And the idea was that um, we, we could instead recruit all of these monarchs to do international politics since they're not allowed to do domestic politics. And since they've got all of those assets in education, and since they're so well informed, about international affairs, and generally speaking, bred for the job, but they're not allowed to perform it, why don't they get sent out by their countries as envoys to some sort of global senate? Again, a lot of people would find that um, offensive in the extreme. But if you think about it, it's not a bad idea. We are actually short of really good, really committed policymakers in the international sphere, because all we've got is the Security Council, God save us. It's funny, that's what happens in the Star Wars universe, Simon. There's all these princes, princesses going to galactic senates. Having never watched Star Wars, I can claim that that wasn't, that wasn't a borrowed idea. Well, I've, I've watched it. I can say that I've, I've made, rebalanced the universe by watching it many times. I, I want to put this to you. When we look around the world today, one of the problems is plainly what political scientists have called democratic erosion. The way in which countries that 20, 30 years ago we were seeing as being firm members of the democratic community of the world are sliding back, that there are restrictions on freedom of speech, on judicial proceedings, elections are being uh, manipulated and periods uh, in power being extended. The, the best known examples that come to mind, probably what's happening in Hungary Poland. Uh, some people uh, would say what's happening in in, in Turkey. Um, but when you look at the countries that are suffering most from democratic erosion, these countries are not constitutional monarchies. I would include with that the United States, that some of the pressures that American institutions have come up uh, under in, in recent years would would also speak to this. The question is, is having a monarchy helping to preserve international image, international positive reality, a positive reputation by slowing democratic erosion? Is it harder to erode democratic institutions in places that have this undemocratic institution at their heart? So it's like a paradox of monarchy. It's a really interesting hypothesis, but what, what would you suggest is exactly the mechanism? How does having a monarchy protect against erosion? Of, uh, By having a non-political institution, so something that is not up for grabs, that exists above that maelstrom of polarisation and, uh, co and combat uh, that, that we see in... Um, our uh, political spheres pretty much all around the world right now. Uh, and monarchies ideally sit above that. 
Right. But plainly above it, but not in a political sense, because, of course, the monarchies have no political power very, very explicitly. So, for example, in the UK, the military, the judiciary, these things are not directly under the, the prime minister, but, in, you know, are, are symbolically and, and, you know, I think emotionally too, look to a different higher authority. And I think that's the case in in other places too. But and it does seem to be missing in uh, in the United in the United States. And the symbols are even fought over in the United States as to whether it's my flag, is it my flag or your flag, this kind of thing. As I say, I think it's a really interesting idea. The 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 way that that I would be inclined to think about this is is about the long termness, as I was mentioning before, with the example of of Sweden, because in my own work advising countries, the, the biggest challenge really has always been to deal with the short timescales of elected politicians, because most of the stuff that they're really interested in fixing, and I've been interested in trying to help them fix, is stuff that cannot almost by definition be fixed within one term in office or even two sometimes. And so I've found myself quite spontaneously looking for institutions that have longer or just different timescales. Because what I've found over the years is that if you bring together a coalition of institutions and organizations that just have different time horizons, then they bridge each other's gaps. And that way you can, um, you can create a kind of um, artificial continuity, academia, business, civil society, culture, the arts, and so on and so forth. They all have their own timescales. None of them, alas, are terribly, terribly long. But if you superimpose them and you spread responsibility for national strategy across them, the chances are that it will last a good deal longer than if you just let it reside within the elected. Um... It's certainly it's such a relief when suddenly you're talking to an institution that has a, a, a long horizon. I mean, was it you who told me the story about the Oxford College with woodworm in the ceiling? No, you know that story. Me. No, no. Uh, one of the Oxford colleges uh, brings in an architect to look at the woodwork in the ceiling of the Great Hall, and the architect he you know gets ready to break bad news to the warden and says, "I'm I'm so terribly sorry, but your oak is uh, has it's going to have to be removed. Uh, it's um, got really serious uh, problems with it, worm or rot or whatever. You're going to need a completely new roof." The oak like this is so expensive, it takes 400 years to mature. And the warden says, well, it's very lucky that 400 years ago we planted a forest uh, for, the, you know, uh, for, for exactly this reason. Being able to think that way, to think 400 years down the, down the road, is a, a great luxury, a great advantage uh, if you're able to think that, if you're fortunate enough to think that way. And I don't think we see enough of that in the international environment. Uh, the, the, the people of the country where I'm aware of that kind of thinking, talking to officials is in, in China. I was going to say, but what about China? Because of course I'm remembering the famous, uh, possibly misattributed quote from Zhou Enlai when he was talking to Henry Kissinger. And Kissinger said to him, what, what's your view on the impact of the French Revolution? And Zhou Enlai was alleged to have said it's too early to tell, which was, which was rather magnificent in the 1960s. There's, a, if you like, the exception that proves the rule. The implication there, and maybe this is a rather Western notion, a piece of Western Orientalism, 
but the idea that um, in, in East Asia, um, there is a natural cultural tendency to plan much, much further ahead. There is more patience and so forth. But that then would, would, would suggest a layer of thinking that's even above the thinking of a, a, of a monarchy, the thinking of, uh, to think with a kind of, um, what do you call it, ethno-nationalism or a civilizational level thinking. Exactly. This is, this, is, this is an anthropological characteristic, not a political one, that it's, it's, it's buried there in the national culture probably not unconnected to the fact that many of the religions in that part of the world are based on ancestor worship and so on and so forth. But also, as anthropologists like, for example, Hofstede have pointed out, the conception of time, the way in, in, in which people uh, illustrate time within their own minds is noticeably different in the East and in the West. And in the East, time is not perceived to be a river that runs from left to right and you're a boat moving along that river. It's more like um, a circle that you're in the middle of and uh, things repeat. Again, I don't really know how much of this is Western Orientalism, but it's a very intriguing proposition that the difference might actually eventually be um, a cultural difference because that suggests that it might be learned. We could learn a long-term view. We could learn long-sightedness. We could learn patience. And for sure, um, we need to because... So many of the problems that we're facing today, like, for example, climate change, have got so bad precisely because our politicians and other power brokers have failed to look ahead even decades, let alone generations. Yeah, but this gets us to the, the, the flip side. You know, I now feel convinced that you know, monarchy is an asset, but, but... What if the monarchy is actually what's wrong? And what if the reputational weakness of a state is based on the bad behavior of uh, monarchs? Can you see monarchs uh, like that out in, in, the, in the world today? Where are they? Um, what, can, what can be done to try and uh, pull those states back? Of course, there are examples. With, with the exception of the European monarchies, where the monarchies have been as it were, like Second World War bombs diffused and safely placed on a right. shelf where they can't cause political explosions any longer. They are, you know, the, 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 the detonator has been removed. And what's then left is, of course, the object of a lot of criticism from time to time, but nothing very, very serious. In other parts of the world, where the monarchies of Africa and West Asia where that process hasn't taken place and where monarchs do still hold real political power and do still, in some cases, run the country along with their families, then the, uh, the situation is, of course, much more volatile. And the, if you like, the original, the traditional, the basic complaints about monarchy come to the fore. But then again, it brings us back to anthropology because one of the things that uh, the cultural study shows us is that people's views of authority are different in different parts of the world. There's this concept in Hofstadter's model of cultural difference, which is called power distance, I'm sure you're familiar with, which basically says that in the West, power distance is very small. The ordinary people feel very close to the people in power, don't feel greatly removed from them. And that's why they resent power being unfairly granted. And they observe the transfer of power very, very closely and very minutely. Whereas in, um, uh, in the Gulf states and in Africa, 
most of those countries, uh, power distance tends to be much greater. And therefore, people just sort of very often accept that the people in power have got that power. It doesn't particularly bother them that it's not democratically assigned. And their view tends to be closer to that of the people of the Fisher King, um, going back again to the Golden Bough, which we talked about before, which is to say, these are sacrificial idiots, these people who run the country. I wouldn't want that job. It's the worst job in the world. Let them do it and let them suffer the consequences. Let me just get on with my life. And even if they're cruel and even if they're unpredictable, and even if they're not, uh, their, their, their power doesn't come to them fairly, and even if they're corrupt and all the rest of it, I don't really care because the price they pay for running the country is so great, um, it doesn't bother me. That's a cartoon version of anthropology, but broadly speaking, that's, that's the distinction. So in a sense, to some degree, to some very unsatisfactory degree, peoples, you could argue, get the type of power structures that suits their culture. But the problem from a point of view of international reputation is that that country is interacting in an environment where there are many other attitudes. Many cultures, yeah. And that if a country wants to do well, wants a good reputation uh, in the wider world, uh, it might need to restrain its monarch. And, you know, I, I think that it's been, it was interesting that the British Council worked to uh, publicize the anniversary of Magna Carta. You know, with this, uh, the great legal restraint on the English monarchy, 1215, you know, that, that, and maybe exporting Magna Carta, exporting that principle of the king being below the law or under the law, this is very important. And in, in situations of democratic erosion, you can see how leaders are, are trying to put themselves above the law, even some of the things that President Trump said. Uh, implied that he had that kind of expectation. And, and, and so maybe it, it, it will be possible for states, for wise leaders anyway, even to, to choose to restrain themselves or to choose to place themselves under limits for the benefit of the image and the reality of their country. Yes. Well, for sure, the message to, uh, to, to, to monarchs uh, anywhere today in, in terms of how their presence benefits or, or fails to benefit the, the overall image of their country is be very, very careful today. You have to be more careful than even than elected politicians to behave in the right way, to behave impeccably. And, you know, you can see, for example, in the case of Saudi Arabia, and MBS Mohammed bin Salman at the moment, how international opinion of, of him as a member of the, of the ruling family goes up and down almost by the week, depending on um, whether the stories about him are more positive or more negative. And it's right. very clear that as part of a ruling family, as part of a hereditary power structure, he's under significantly more scrutiny um, from international public opinion, quite aside from elite opinion as as any democratically elected leader so the eyes are on you and um as i say their behavior has to be twice as good as that of a of yes. an elected politician. and uh, you know i think in a way there's the focus should be more broad and mm. there are plenty of abuses going on in the uae and in bahrain mm. that should and other other places in the gulf that should be spoken about too he does mm. right now 
uh, MBS is is kind of getting the full force of yes. international indignation. Rightly, I, I just yes. wish people were better informed about the dreadful things that have been done by um, UAE, Bahrain, and other monarchies in 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 that um, area. But it, you know, it seems to me that where we're getting to 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 draw this to a conclusion hmm. is that it, this is the world today is a reverse of how we imagine it being in the past, where the individual had to go carefully for fear of the monarch, and that now the monarch should go carefully for fear of the individual. Mm. Maybe this goes to something, you know, the, the real power in the world now is not monarchs, but, but public opinion, something you've said better than I before, and uh, it makes it a very interesting moment to be talking about monarchy. Yes, how the mighty there have fallen. <laughs> okay, that's uh, indeed, indeed. Well, thank you so much for listening. That's all we've got time for today. I'm still Nick Cole. And I'm still Simon Anhold. <laughs>